Guys, welcome to Junkyard Theory, and this is episode number eight. Now, this session is not happening live, but it's uh, pre-recorded. Still, I am so excited for this session because the man we are bringing on is a legend in his own right. He is the cinematographer behind the Back to the Future trilogy, The Thing, the Halloween trilogy, and also, also, everyone's favorite, Jurassic Park. And he is also an Academy Award nominee uh, for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to welcome Dean Kandi. Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Akash, um, for this opportunity. It's my and, pleasure, um, sir. I'm, I'm very glad to be here. So, uh, Dean, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into cinematography? Like, uh, how did you get into the whole filmmaking side of things? When did you know you wanted to become somebody uh, in, in the film industry? Well, I, I've been fascinated by film since I was a young boy, about, um, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. Um, I used to um, be um, dropped off at the local cinema when I was um, very young, and my mother would uh, take myself and two or three friends on Saturday and drop us and uh, then she would go shopping. And um, that's in the days when it was safe to drop your kids somewhere and you weren't considered being a bad parent. <laughs> so I, um, I loved film from the, that beginning. I loved the idea that there were these people making these films and while I was interested in the characters and stuff, the uh, the story, I um, I actually really liked the idea of the illusion, the magic that these people were creating, the idea that um, the audience was sitting there and believing uh, whatever was happening, no matter how fantastic. If if of mm -hmm. course it was a good film, yeah. And if it wasn't, um, I would say, well, why? Uh, why wasn't it magical? So I decided uh, by the time I was um, uh, in high school that I wanted to go into film. I had been doing, uh, you know, a, some cinematography, you might say, um, early because I was the family uh, documentarian. When we went on a vacation, um, I would have my father's movie camera and I would uh, be shooting, uh, you know, what, whatever it is, what is we were doing and family events, birthdays and things. <clears throat> and then I started making little films myself, little story films. So in high school, I had decided that's what I wanted to do. And I uh, applied to UCLA film school mm -hmm. and, um, I was actually lucky enough to get in. Um, wow. Now, it's so difficult to get into UCLA and a lot of the others that I probably wouldn't have been able to get in, but um, I was able to do it. And I had um, two years of intensive training. I had taken my other college classes. So two years of intensive training in filmmaking and um, at the end of it, um, I uh, graduated and I was lucky enough to get a job almost immediately 
what I felt. Um, but I was taking any job I could get at that point. And my first job was doing makeup on a uh, feature film, a very low budget feature film. But it was the opportunity for me to um, to be on the set to to see how it worked, what people did in in real life, not just on student films. And um, so it, it further encouraged me that this is what I wanted to do. And I knew I really wanted to be in cinematography. So I um, <clears throat> I um, did any job I could get, but always looking towards what could I do that was, you know, aiming towards cinematography. I would work as a um, special effects person or an editor or whatever, but it was always mm -hmm. about how do I get into the cinematography? And and I would take any job that would, made me closer. Um, <clears throat> and one day I was going to, um, I was going to be the gaffer, the lighting assistant to uh, a friend of mine who was shooting a very small, low budget movie. Mm -hmm. And um, on the morning that we were to begin, I went to the set thinking I was going to be setting lights and he was going to be shooting. And the director came up and said, oh, I don't know what to do. Um, Michael, who was the cinematographer, my friend, Michael was in an, an auto accident last night. Oh. Um, he's okay, but he, he's in great pain and he's hurt himself and and uh, he doesn't think he's going to be able to do it and, and I don't mm -hmm. know what to do and I said well why don't I take over for him uh, <laughs> this first day while you have a chance to uh, look for someone you know a replacement and uh, so we shot the first day <clears throat> the second day I came back and uh, said did you find anyone and Graydon, the director, said, uh, well, no, but, but why don't we just keep going uh, with you doing it while I, I'll, I'll look. And um, so I did. And wow. uh, at the end of the first week, Graydon came to me and said, you know, you're not too bad at this. Maybe this is what you should do. And I, I uh, didn't want to tell him, yes, that's all I've ever wanted to do. Um, I wanted to make him the wise one. So I said, oh, well, excellent. Thank you very much. Maybe I'll, I will do that. So I shot five films for the same director, five low-budget films, and uh, wow. gained a lot of experience and um, made connections. And um, people saw, I guess, my work and, and uh, recommended me to others. And uh, I began working. Um, as a cinematographer, right out of uh, film school, almost. And you owe uh, your career to Michael. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sadly, um, you know, and I think he, uh, he went on to do some other things, but I didn't hear from him after that. And uh, so I, um, I've been meaning to uh, maybe do a Google search and see if I can find him. You probably should. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dean, I mean, you, 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 you have such a massive body of work. Your, your films range from one genre to 
the, the other. Like you started off with certain horror movies, then you jumped on to uh, sci-fi and also to action, comedy, like it spans a lot. So how do you think, like as a cinemato cinematographer, how do you tackle these different genres? <clears throat> well, it's funny because I had done maybe a dozen or more low budget films I started on. And um, they were action films, you know, I call them girls with machine guns and penis. And then something blows up. <laughs> um, those kinds of low budget action films. <clears throat> And then I, uh, I met John Carpenter, and we made Halloween. Mm. And when it, it was a big success, eventually, um, I start, started getting calls for um, people who wanted me to shoot their horror films. Everyone else was now going to copy Halloween, because before Halloween, there, there weren't really any horror films. Halloween really started the trend. And uh, so all of these people immediately wanted to begin making their own horror films and they would call me. And um, I did a couple, but I realized that I was going to be typecast. I was going to mm -hmm. be sort of stuck in the horror film. So I, um, <clears throat> as difficult as it was, I turned down a couple and looked for something else and um you know ended up getting i think a comedy and then a small musical and and all of that because um outside of the, my reputation i thought it would be good to get experience in how do you tell different kinds of stories you know because it's all mm. about telling a story with the camera and um how do you tell those stories successfully. And um, so I, um, I began taking any other kind of film I could get. And um, it, it sort of helped a lot because um, then I, I wasn't defined as a cinematographer who only did horror. Sure. And uh, as you can see, I am a massive Jurassic Park fan, and I know so many people who got into the business uh, after seeing this particular movie. How how did you get this job? How did you, how did you get the uh, job as a cinematographer on the movie that would go on to become the highest crossing film at the time? Well, <clears throat> I um, I had been doing various films with Bob Zemeckis, and and a lot of them were produced by Steven Spielberg and, mm -hmm. and his company. So I had this um, acquaintance with Spielberg. He would come to the set and we would talk and, and so forth. And um, then, so one day I got a phone call um, from a woman who said, uh, Steven Spielberg's on the phone for you. And I said, oh, okay, excellent. And, um, he said uh, he was doing this movie called Hook, mm -hmm. and it was um, going to be an interesting, um, you know, fantasy kind of film. Was I interested in shooting it? And I, of course, said, well, yes, of course. So I, um, I began working with Stephen directly as a 
as a director on Hook. Mm-hmm. And as we were um, about a week or so away from finishing the film, Stephen came to me and said, you know, um, Universal wants me to do this little dinosaur movie. Um, <laughs> would, you, would you like to work on it? And I said, sure, I've always wanted to work on a little dinosaur movie. Um, and um, it became, as we all know, um, a groundbreaking film because it was the first to use the computer to um, create photorealistic uh, creatures. Yeah, and we uh, we pioneered um, you know the techniques, and um, it was you know a, just a great experience. And um, as we all know, um, people went to see it over and over and, and over again. <laughs> yes. Wow. And uh, I mean the production process. So uh, you had to face the, the challenge of uh, putting photorealistic dinosaurs in there without probably even knowing what, what it was going to look like. And uh, I, I want to kind of like talk a little bit about aspect ratios and you know how you put different creatures and like how they change from movie to movie. I think you guys employed uh, a taller aspect ratio on Jurassic Park as opposed to the wider cinemascope. So how, how does aspect ratio you know, uh, affect the, the story that's being told? Well, <clears throat> I, um, I've always been a fan of the, um, been a fan of the wide, you know, anamorphic, aspect ratio 2.4 or 2.39 or whatever people call it yeah and um because it is i think how we as people perceive the world more accurately portrays you know we see wider than we do see up and down true and um and there are people you know i've worked with producers and directors who say oh no 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 we have to use the the smaller 185 ratio, mm. uh, because you can't shoot a close-up in this big wide aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. And um, I would disagree because I would say, well, you can still frame a head, but you can put a lot of information on the sides of the frame. Yeah. You know? And if you don't want the information, you can find ways to block it. So you control the audience's point of view. Um, and um, so um, with John Carpenter and a lot of others, uh, we always shot with this two, three, five wide aspect ratio. And um, Stephen wanted to do that for Hook because he felt there were a lot of, uh, of the boys, you know, the Lost Boys, um, bigger, uh, you know, backgrounds and environments, um, the jungles and Neverland and everything. Yeah. Um, so when we went to uh, begin prepping in Jurassic Park, he said that he felt that because the dinosaurs were going to be taller mm-hmm. than wide, that um, he would he would like to shoot it in one eight five, and uh, I could uh, I could see the logic of his 
his reasoning. Um, you know, you could you can fill the frame uh, with a tall dinosaur easier with one eight five than you can with two three five. Um, I you know I think it would have been nice to have two three five um, you know also I mean as a choice because you know you fill the frame with the jungle and the environment yeah. and all of that but uh, but I think it was a good choice um, because. Um, you know, you can, like I say, fill the frame with a, an imposing, you know, creature. And sure. uh, so it uh, it worked out okay. It worked out amazingly. <laughs> yeah, well, people came to see the movie, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dean, you also, you know, like, uh, just like with Jurassic Park, you included so many uh, CGI elements or creatures, characters in your movies throughout your career. Uh, and the, the the movie that you were Oscar nominated for also included uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it CGI, but it included uh, characters, two uh, D characters interacting with uh, the three D actors on screen, which was uh, mm -hmm. Who Framed right. Roger Rabbit. And to mm -hmm. this day, this movie still blows my mind. And I know you guys use motion control, but how did you prepare for? you know, uh, something like uh, 2D characters are in interacting with uh, the, the actors on screen. Well, I had been interested in animation since I was a kid, you know, this 10 or 12 year old period. So I read uh, all about animation from that time, uh, especially Disney, you know, they published books about how they animated and I saw all the Disney films. So I, I had a very good, background and understanding of, of animation, animation techniques and, and uh, so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, when uh, Bob Zemeckis came to me and said, we're doing this film and it's going to have uh, animated characters, pencil drawn, because now of course, everything is done in the computer. Yeah. Pencil on paper animation, which was the classic kind that I had always learned about. Um, and uh, was I interested in working on it? And I said, of course. And I had, I had a little head start, I think, because of this, my background in animation. I, I didn't have to learn anything about the techniques and how it was done. I could just apply them um, to this new technique, um, technology. And um, so that's what um, that's what we did. We um, we photographed the film in VistaVision, which was mm -hmm. a um, very wide aspect ratio, but also um, it the film went through the camera sideways, so you actually shot on a negative, captured twice as large as usual. Okay. Um, and then <clears throat> when they did the compositing, they would reduce that and all of the animation that had been shot and all the effects and everything, they would reduce that down to the usual four perf as we called it, um, mm -hmm. or 185. And in doing that, it improved the quality, sharpness and, and the grain and, and all of the things that um, you, um, you, would normally get 
by compositing and duplicating the film, it yeah. disappeared. So it gave the, the film a very clean uh, look. And it was a very wise um, uh, choice. And we had to build two special cameras um, from scratch in order to do it. And um, so it was, it was great. Um, it, it was great to have everybody on board wanting to do it, you know, with this new technique. And nobody said, oh, well, that's going to be too hard. Why don't you just use these regular cameras or whatever? Everybody said, oh, yes, we must. We must do it. So um, as a result, um, everybody concentrated and was paying attention to the job. Um, and everybody said, well, how can I contribute, uh, you know, whether it was from the visual effects down to the mechanical effects guy on the set, um, to um, the, the editors, to all of the animators, everybody wanted to do something special. And I, of course, wanted to be a part of that. So uh, as a result, um, you know, we did something that hadn't been done that way before. Now, they'd been making animation, live-action composing films since the silent days. Yeah. And Disney had done Pete's Dragon and uh, Mary Poppins and, and a lot of other films. Um, but nobody had done it with this attention to detail. And... Um, and Disney at first said, well, I don't think it's necessary. But um, when uh, everybody in charge of it said, no, we, we have to do something special, uh, Disney said, well, okay, go ahead. And um, so as a result, um, we ended up with a film that at the time was way ahead of uh, what it is now. Now, of course, everybody does it, and, and it's all done in the computer and, and um, so forth. But... Um, it's it to me it was such a great experience and I'm very proud of the fact that we were able to um, accomplish something that uh, in a way that hadn't been done before I think it still stands to this day because uh, like a little while ago I was showing my uh, DOP the you know like a few clips and we were talking about like how it still stands uh, to this day it's it's amazing yeah, that's, I think that's one of the rewarding things about a lot of the films I've been uh, privileged to work on. Yeah. Um, Roger Rabbit, Jurassic Park, um, Back to the Future. numerous others. Yeah. yeah, Back to the Future. They all, they all hold up today. They all have, um, you know, the story that's interesting, mm. uh, the characters that intrigues the audience, but the techniques and the technology all, um, you know, all are uh, still relevant today. You know, you, you look at uh, any of the films, nothing in them that says, oh, this is very old school. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, basically visual effects, CGI, this whole blend, uh, you guys used practical effects on the Jurassic Park set as well. Like you guys actually built animatronic dinosaurs and then combined that with CGI to you know, seamlessly blend them together and create 
something that was never before done uh, on screen. And in recent years, we've noticed that, you know, uh, the trend is changing. It's becoming more CGI fueled and driven. And it doesn't necessarily have the same effect. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that it's possible to do anything or almost anything in CGI. Mm -hmm. um, you can do things that are completely, um, completely impossible in the real world. Sure. And, um, and I think a lot of times that the, the guys who do the visual effects, the guys who sit in front of the computers, um, they say, well, you know, the story says this, this thing should blow up or this guy should be able to fly and land and do whatever. Mm -hmm. But you know what else? I can add to that and I can make it even bigger and better. Okay. And um, so people start to add bigger and better. Yeah. Um, and they get to the point where um, it's obvious to the audience that what they're seeing is impossible. Mm. They, we all understand the laws of physics about how objects fall and the speed of things and how things blow up and all. We, we uh, know that just from instinct of having seen real things on films. So when we are given um, the, the false version of something, I think we, we understand that and realize it. And it, uh, I think it takes people away. They, while it entertains them, and they say, oh, I've never seen that before. <clears throat> it also separates them from the reality. True. Um, they know that that couldn't possibly happen or a human, whether they're a superhero or not, couldn't possibly do that. Um, and I, I think that one of the things on Jurassic Park we, we decided was, how do we make sure that whatever we're seeing follows the rules of physics and, and the real world and, you know, and yeah. of all the animation that was done in CGI was brilliantly done by Phil Tippett um, in such a way that all of the creatures move authentically. Um, they, there's a sense of uh, size and weight. Uh, things like the T-Rex the running you know, mm. the tail waves and it has yeah. weight. And we say, oh yeah, that, that's the way it would really be as opposed to, you know, bad animation. So uh, the good animation and that followed what we did with the um, audio animatronic or the, um, the, the puppets, um, you know, they're full size, um, dinosaurs that were created with rubber skins and painted and, and um, metal skeletons that held them up. And uh, we, we used those whenever we could, but whenever the dinosaurs had to walk and move and do things that we couldn't do effectively with the uh, puppets, the CGI people took over, but they did it well because then they followed the rules. They watched, whatever the action was with the, uh, you know, animatronic ones. And um, they made the, the animation and the CGI ones match it. So you're never aware of 
where the computer ends and the physical world um, takes up. And I, I think that's one of those things that I'm very proud about with um, Jurassic Park is to watch it and, and say, well, it still holds up. Technically, there are no uh, faults and, and things where people say, oh, you know, that looks phony compared to now. It, it all looks real. And, and to uh, you know, keep up with that, um, with all of the um, with the sequels, and uh, and I think sometimes they don't. Sometimes the dinosaurs look a little too um, mm. superhero-y or you know impossible. <laughs> but um, you know, and and that, and it's again the the problem with. Um, with the computer guys who sit in front of their computer and say, you know, you know what we could do but besides this, let's do this. <laughs> and um, as a result, um, they take it into a, a world of where they're proving something, but not doing it in such a way that it's effective for the film or the audience. Gotcha. And uh, you shot throughout your career, like you started off with film and uh, I mean, like uh, nowadays, most people have switched to digital. Have you as well or? Yeah, I, um, I remember working on a couple of things, a, a TV series where it normally, uh, not a series, but a TV movie. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it was going to be a pilot, but, um, and it was, um, it would normally have been shot on film, but the director wanted to try digital. And so we had these um, actually pretty big digital cameras um, that were slow and less effective, but um, they, they were okay for being used on television. So I, I started to get a little experience in the digital world. Uh, the fact that you could go over to a monitor and see what it is you were shooting as opposed to on film, you know, as, as I often explain the, the light that's out there in the scene and the characters and the shapes and everything, they go through the lens and they land on the film and the film mm -hmm. captures that image. And <clears throat> you can't really see it until it's developed and printed. And, you know, so it's usually a day or two later when you can find out whether the choices you made were good ones or not. Yeah. Did you make any mistakes? Um, was something you did exceptionally good? Were there, uh, were there mistakes that made it better? Um, accidents and things, you know? So it was a process of constantly learning what film could capture and how it did it and so forth. Um, digital now makes it possible to aim the camera and run over to the monitor and see exactly what you're getting. Um, in some ways, that's a big help. Uh, at first, it was um, it was a little bit uh, disconcerting because everybody would go over to the monitor. It was a new thing. Oh my gosh, let's go over and see what it looks like. Um, and the director would look at it and say, "Well, it's it's not going to be that dark back there." And you'd say, no, 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 we haven't added the light yet back there. Oh, 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 okay. But what is this in the frame over here? 
Oh, mm -hmm. that's just the, one of the lights that we haven't set up yet. Mm. Oh, okay. And and um, everybody would be second guessing, you know, if you accidentally left the camera aimed away because you're doing some setup or something, the prop guy would run over to the monitor and say, oh, I didn't know we were going to see that part of the room. Uh, we're seeing off the set. Maybe <laughs> I should address it, you know, and, and everybody sort of became um, concerned because it was a new new mm. vision um but now i think uh, everybody you know understands the process and and uh, they go check the monitor when it's important but otherwise they they stay away and let people do their job yeah with the advent of uh, digital technology and uh, digital cameras uh, it's made it a lot easier for people to uh, actually make films and now, now you can see people actually making movies uh, with their smartphones or their iPhones, whatever. So uh, Absolutely. How, do see, how do you see uh, independent filmmaking uh, progressing, you know, with, uh, with the times? Well, it's one of those things I, whenever I, I um, lecture at a film school or, or university about film, I, um, I always caution the students because in the old days you had to get a camera with um, it was expensive to buy the film it was expensive to develop it and print it mm -hmm. and it wasn't until like i say maybe a couple days later you could see it and you had to be very careful with um you know only shooting what you could afford shooting what you needed and so forth um, now, everybody has a, uh, a, a digital camera in their pocket, and they're getting pretty good. Um, and the new iPhone has three different lenses, but before, um, you know, there was only one lens. So um, I think what it, what it did is that it started to give people too much confidence. Um, even even producers on shows where you were using professional digital cameras to make a feature, they would uh, come over and and you'd have the camera set up before you started lighting, and they said, "Well, we can see everything. Why why do we have to light it? Let's just let's just go. Let's go." And you say, "Well, it's just the light coming through the window." And he said, "Yeah, but it but it you know we can shoot now." And um, so you have to be careful that. Um, you don't let this too easy um, world of uh, mm. digital and, and your iPhone um, take you away from the creative control of, of, of creating a visual storytelling, uh, painting with the light and making, making the scene dark and scary or uh, natural looking or um, you know, for period films, you don't have yeah. lights, so you have to make sure people believe what they're seeing. And um, so I, I think that uh, we have to be careful that we don't get um, led too far down this path of it's so easy, you know. And, um, yeah. and, and even film students, they, um, they're, uh, I, taught at a uh, university where they had a, um, a film contest, a film festival, and you had to make a short film 
on your iPhone. Mm -hmm. And um, so as a result, everybody sort of said, well, okay, I'll just capture this image with my phone. And that must be what it is. Oh, look, I can see everything. Why do I have to have lights? Um, so it can be, you know, that's the kind of thing that says, no, what you're going to learn is where to place the camera and tell a story visually, but you're not necessarily creating mood. And if you are mm -hmm. creating mood, you have to do it because it's very thoughtful. You just have to say, oh, I'm going to close all of the other windows except this one, or yeah. I'm going to close all the windows and turn on that one table lamp in the corner because I want the mood to be dark and spooky or whatever. So um, I, I think that we have to be, be careful that we don't lose all of the control and the thought and the, the painting um, that uh, we've always done up till now out of necessity uh, sure. because we think we don't need to do it anymore. I really like what you said that, you know, added up to the fact that just because you can point a camera and shoot something doesn't necessarily, you know, mean you are making a film. Because, That's correct. Yeah. So, so many people uh, own cameras nowadays. And uh, I think there's this distinct difference between uh, being a videographer and a filmmaker. So correct. As, as a cinematographer, how do you approach uh, the storytelling process? Like once you get the screenplay, how do you break it down in such a way you're like, okay, these scenes we're going to shoot it this particular way the mood's going to be like this but in this we're going to be using motivated camera moves for you know such and such how do you uh, break that process down well i think uh, in in the world of dramatic filmmaking telling stories um, it begins with the story whether it's a script or whether as a filmmaker it's in your mind but um, hopefully it's a script because it, that allows everyone to see the story that uh, is intended. Yeah. And you read the script and you, you have to be able to see the movie in your mind. You have to be reading the script say, oh, this would be very effective with a wide shot that's very high. Um, and then um, a close-up and then an insert of um, uh, the girl opens the drawer and there's the gun. And uh, it's all about how, how do the images tell the story? And um, <clears throat> so by visualizing the movie, and hopefully as the director, you're able to do this. Now, not all directors sadly do that. Um, I think we as cinematographers are trained and um, made to work in that way. We understand that visuals are how you tell the story. Yeah. Um, and they're not all directors um, do that. Some of them come from the world of, of words. Some of them come from the world of uh, um, actors, um, you know, and, and um, it's, it's a case of, for cinematography, um, learning how much you can help a director if he doesn't understand visuals, or if he does, um, you're both on the same page and how do you help each other tell the story right. even better? Um, you know, so I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's a case of 
understanding the story, how to tell it visually. What is the mood? Uh, is it dark? Is it uh, bright and happy comedy? Um, is it, um, you know, a period film? Whatever it is. And, and how do you get the audience to see that, empathize, believe, um, and uh, understand what the intention is? Um, what is the story and who are the characters and, and, um, and the mood and, and all of that. And it, and it's, um, it's important as, um, as filmmakers, directors, cinematographers, um, and of course, everybody to, uh, yeah. collaborate and understand how, um, how the story should be told for that one particular script that you're working on. Brilliant. And how far do you work with, uh, you know, storyboards and shot lists? Do you uh, employ this quite often or is it something that depends on, you know, project to project? Uh, it's project to project. <clears throat> some directors, um, some directors rely heavily on storyboards to help them visualize. Mm -hmm. But it depends where the storyboards come from. Um, I've been on films where they say, we're going to need a storyboard artist to uh, help us help the director see this. And so they take the script and they hand it to a storyboard person. And the storyboard guy sits down and makes the movie with his drawings, except he's making his own movie. Yeah. It isn't necessarily the director's. And unless the director is there to say, oh, this is good, but I want to have a very wide shot here. Um, and then this one um, really should, uh, we don't see the character until he enters and, you know, and offer um, his or her um, view of how a scene or, the movie should be. Mm -hmm. um, so storyboards are good. Um, they help visualize, especially for, you know, special effects sequences, CGI stuff. Yeah. Um, all of the people who are going to be involved have a chance to see the kind of shot. And that's, that's where it's even more important for the, the director to make sure that the storyboards reflect his or her, um, you know, point of view, so that everybody who then begins working on the scene or the shot uh, knows what it's going to be or should be. So I, I think that um, storyboards can be very helpful if they are um, kept in perspective, kept, you know, with the understanding that they are guidelines. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, because it, it is possible, and very often, you know, what has happened um, with, with uh, you know, like guys, filmmakers like Bob Zemeckis, Bob maybe a few storyboards for a, some particular scene, an action scene, because the second unit is going to be involved. But for the most part, um, you can quite easily go into you know a sequence the set with the actors and you block it out what is it logical why would the character go over there yeah um and 
And then as you watch the scene develop, you say, oh, it's important we see his expression here when he's turned away from the girl. Mm -hmm. So that requires him to come forward and um, turn to the camera. And what's the reason he should do that? And you work that out with the actors. And, and you can work on the set and accomplish the same thing. And very often on the set, I will walk around to somewhere where the director isn't standing just to get different perspectives on, on possible shots or, or blocking ideas. Um, and then once it's all, um, once it's all sort of decided, once the, uh, um, you know, scene is, is decided in, in approximately what the shots are going to be, I then start making an overhead view of mm. the set with the characters, uh, in position for various moments. Um, one character here and then a little dotted line that says he goes over here. Mm -hmm. um, and then I start to mark camera positions with a simple little V that shows yeah. the direction. And um, that, to me, becomes the reminder of, oh, yeah, we intended to get a shot over here. Or it's essential mm -hmm. that we get the, you know, the sh shot of the drawer opening with the gun in it or whatever it is. Yeah. So it's, um, um, I, I look at storyboards as being a, an interesting kind of tool, but that shouldn't be held as, you know, absolutely the, the only thing. I've, I've worked a few times with directors who, who don't have the ability to visualize, uh, mm -hmm. and they, they admit that. Um, they can't read the script and see all of the shots and everything. Gotcha. So sometimes they use the storyboards drawn by somebody else because, mm -hmm. you know, they, they can't really draw. I always recommend to film students, if you're going to be a director, <laughs> learn how to draw. Take a class in drawing or something so that it makes you feel comfortable, even if they are just crude representations of the human face. At least we know it's a close-up. Um, and don't don't use like stick figures and things like that. So um, <clears throat> I'll I'll work with uh, with a director who has trouble visualizing, and then when they get the storyboards, that's how they've seen the movie. That's how they visualized it. So now sure. you'd say, you know, there's a better chance if when he walks over here, he can be in his own close up. And then when he turns, we see that the girl is upset. And, well, wait, 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 wait. Now I have, the storyboards just have two separate shots. And we say, yeah, but we can combine it. It'll speed up the process, but it's even more dramatically interesting. Um, mm. No, I, I, you know, I understand the storyboard, so let's just do that. And immediately <laughs> the, the director has sort of limited um, mm. themselves to, you know, something that's less effective yeah as a filmmaker myself uh, what i employ is uh, you know i, I uh, also storyboard for the most part and i also use shot lists as a way of you know uh, preventing myself from forgetting to uh, get enough coverage so uh, but at, at, at the end of the day when we do go on set sometimes you know it, 
most of the time it ends up being just a guideline and we simply uh, sometimes chug it, chug it out and we improvise on set. But at the same time, it, you know, the, the shot list especially stands as a tool to help us uh, achieve and like basically cover everything that we need to get in the edit. Uh, what are your thoughts on shot listing? Um, I think they can be helpful. Um, sometimes the um, sometimes the director worked with, and especially new ones, they'll say, "Okay, I've I've made a shot list. Here it is, everybody," <clears throat> and um, they'll hand it out and it'll say, "Wide shot, um, the guy comes through the door. Hmm. Medium shot, the girl. Um, close up of this." Quote, you know, and that becomes the same as storyboards that may not be exactly accurate. And and they're harder for the other people to understand. True. It says two two shots, but how wide is it? Are we gonna see the desk? Uh, do I need to have all of the things on the desk or mm. uh, you know? So um the the storyboards can be a little more accurate representation of the intention of each shot. Um, to me, the shot list is a good is a good tool for the uh, director to keep track exactly. of exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, and because if the director has made the shot list, he or she knows what the intention of each shot is mm. better than other people who just get the uh, the shot list. So um, I think it's important that. Uh, you know, shot lists are, are um, <clears throat> considered to be a checklist for the director, not as, as I've had sometimes, a director will hand out the shot list and say, okay, here's what we're gonna do today. Okay, everybody go. And presumably everybody can see the same movie as he does in his mind. Um, so that, um, um, mm. you know, it, it, it it doesn't really become helpful. It's just a, a list of of uh, shots, and sometimes there, I've even had directors <clears throat> who say close up of the girl, and then wide shot of the guy comes in the door, and then close up of the girl, and <laughs> then medium shot of the door opens um, in the closet, and then close up of the girl, and. So the close-up of the girl is at three shots. So mm. you get down to the bottom of the list and there are 48 setups or 56. Um, and you say, well, we can't shoot that many uh, in a day. And then you go down the list and say, okay, wait, close-up of the girl appears six times. Okay, that's all the same shot. We'll cross <laughs> off the other five, you know, and, um, then you realize it's it's easier than because the director was cutting the movie in his mind you know he was sure. reading the script and it says the girl reacts and then the guy comes in and the girl is afraid and then the guy goes over to the uh, bookcase and the girl follows him and uh, watches him go and she's even more afraid and you know it, well <laughs> as the director is seeing that movie in his mind Mm. writing down all of the shots yeah. so shot lists have to be done with uh, understanding and intelligence i think true true 
and uh, we are com kind of coming towards the ending. Like uh, it's an hour's length. This uh, what I can actually put up on Instagram, but I will put a longer version up on uh, Facebook right. and wherever I can. So uh, the next question that I have is, uh, you know, film and fiction, basically narrative fiction, narrative filmmaking, they show us things that don't necessarily uh, exist in reality just yet, but sometimes. Uh, you know, you, you wait a few years down the line and then eventually certain things start up, you know, end up becoming uh, reality. Does it, uh, or does it not bother you that certain things in your films might actually end up becoming true? No, it's actually, um, it's kind of fun to look back. For instance, <laughs> uh, Back to the Future 2, I think it was, yeah. where... Um, Marty has his family and his son, and Marty's son comes into the house and goes over to the TV, which is a flat screen hanging on the wall, and he straightens it, um, and then he says, turn on channels two and six and eight and four, and all of these windows mm -hmm. pop up. Yeah. At the time, there was no such thing as a flat screen TV. It's, um, you know, hard for kids. What? A big box. Why was that? Um, you know, the flat screen is just the way TV. Yeah. Well, that was an invention of Bob and Bob, the writers, to think that a TV would ever be flat. Now, to do that, we had to build a very elaborate rig with a, a video projector and a hole in the wall and we hung mm -hmm. this screen on it um, and um, in order to straighten it and have the images stay the same the the frame was attached to this rod that held the video projector and so it would all turn it was a very very complicated uh, situation um, in order to create the illusion that there were things like flat screen TVs mm -hmm. didn't exist so um, when, when we, um, we, when the, the writers, when Bob and Bob come up with a lot of things like that, that come true, you know, you have to watch a movie and say, well, okay, if, if, they, if they had flat screen TVs in this movie and that came true, I bet those flying cars aren't far behind. <laughs> Fair enough. But what about dinosaurs and aliens, shape-shifting aliens? <laughs> oh, yes. How about them? So, um, who knows? Uh, when, uh, <clears throat> when Jurassic Park came out, I live in Pasadena, which is near Caltech, which is the, um, mm -hmm. the ultimate... Um, school for technology and science and everything yeah and um so i um i was invited to come to a presentation um it was myself talking about this film that had just come out jurassic park and how we portrayed the dinosaurs and created them mm -hmm. um, and the idea that they were grown from old prehistoric DNA that they mm. extracted from the uh, mosquito. And, um, and on the other 
side of the stage next to me was a guy who was one of the uh, premier biological researchers. And he was talking about the realities of that kind of possibility, whether we would really be able to ever extract DNA. Mm -hmm. And he said, we can't do it now, but you know, the same people who invent these stories about dinosaur DNA coming to life are the same kinds of people who sit in a laboratory and invent the same kind of stories in their mind. And they say, <laughs> well, we're not going to use rubber puppets and CGI. We're going to use actual DNA. Let's see if we can do it. <laughs> so, so it's, um, to me, it's always a, um, always a fun thing to be part of a film that, that uses human imagination to create mm. a world or uh, an event or something. Yeah. And then find out that, um, you know, it's come true, whether it inspired somebody or whether the movie was inspired by somebody who said, we're working on this. It's still, um, it's still the same, um, creative uh, crossover uh, with human creativity and the human mind coming up with um, all kinds sure. of uh, yeah. interesting things about the present and the future. Amazing. <laughs> also, uh, you know, you've worked with so many people throughout the years, people like Spielberg, uh, Robert Zemeckis, and uh, in 2010, you also shot uh, the action comedy, uh, The Spy Next Door, working oh, with yes. another legend, Jackie Chan. Right. Yes, indeed. And uh, how was that experience like? I mean, you covered uh, dinosaurs, uh, flying cars, everything. And then you come face to face with, some, face to face with somebody who comes from an entirely different background, which is like Hong Kong cinema. Yeah. How did you manage to, uh, you know? You know, I've been, I've been very fortunate from that standpoint yeah um because it's it's not just about making films that are stores uh, in the future <clears throat> but it's also about films that are um about contemporary people and characters and possibilities and actions and stories so it was it was to me a, a huge um, fun experience, but also um, a, a great honor to work with Jackie Chan, who has had put his own amazing touch. You know, yeah. um, there was um, you know kung fu movies and martial arts movies, and and um, it's been used um, you know for for decades as part of a story. You know, you can look at. Uh, things that go back to the 40s and, and so forth and and yeah. see that there's that same kind of action. But Jackie was a very unique martial arts talent. He was able to take something that was so serious mm. um, and uh, used for very particular purposes uh, and turn it into entertainment, into fun into uh, you know not take himself 
or martial arts too seriously. Um, and so it was a lot of fun watching his creative process, working with him, talking to him, um, sharing lunch with him, you know, all, all of those things too. Um, because there's, there's a guy who is, you know, a legend yeah. in, in filmmaking. Um, you know, who, who created uh, really kind of a genre of, of uh, film. And, um, you know, to, to see how he thought and, and um, how he accomplished some of his amazing things. Time travel movies have changed quite a, quite a lot since uh, Back to the Future came up. And they're basically, you know, the, the contemporary time travel movies, they've picked up where uh, Back to the Future kind of left off. What are your thoughts on uh, the, the more recent time travel movies? Well, <clears throat> I think time travel has always intrigued us as people, as, as viewers, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we like to see movies that take us back in time um, to, uh, was it 1 million BC? was the name of the movie about yeah, uh, people uh, and uh, dinosaurs at the time, you know, even though people and dinosaurs didn't no, exist together. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, we were fascinated with being able to go places in a movie that we can't go in reality. Mm -hmm. um, so I think um, time, time travels, you know, you, you look at um, um, the, the, um, H.G. Wells movie, The Time Machine, mm. and uh, things like that. Yeah. Um, um, they they all were, were intrigued by the fact that um, we can go back and, and um, manipulate time. We can uh, experience things, um, you know, that we can't in real life, you know. So, so whatever a film can do, time travel movies are sort of one of the essential aspects of our imagination. And um, so I think that, um, um, you know, we're always looking for new ways to tell stories, new ways for an audience to become intrigued. If we told the same story over and over, yeah, um, then, um, you know, we would become bored. Uh, even though they say there are really only seven plots um, seven storylines that, yeah. uh, um, but that are rehashed or an order. Exactly. Re yeah. Reformed and made fresh. And the good ones are the ones that take an imaginative approach to telling, um, the same, same story. Well, time travel is the same kind of thing going somewhere we can't in real life. Sure. Um, we can't do that. But who knows, maybe in the future. Uh, however, I digress. Um, so time travel movies are one of those things that, and I think that we're always looking for a new twist, or, or we should be. Um, we don't want to see the same time travel movie. Um, you know. And Back to the Future was time travel, but um, it had the added um, you know, idea that who wouldn't want to go back in time and fix something that went wrong or, you know, um, go back in time accidentally as Marty does, he's driven, um, 
and um, find out that he's made a mistake or or mm -hmm. something that is affected and now he's got to fix it and you know so it, yeah. it's one of those great dramatic quandaries that we have um, and I think time travel movies allow us to do that because it it takes us somewhere we recognize um, or into the future somewhere that we don't recognize and we want a glimpse of what does somebody think it's going to be like um, and um, how how can you as a viewer deal with that is it too scary or um Could you go ahead with it yeah um does it make you think oh yeah i better be careful with what i do because it could affect this or that you know yeah uh next question what's your favorite memory on set oh <laughs> favorite memory that Tough would one. be impossible mm. that would to be because i have so many well some of my favorite memories are the people i've been able to work with actors mm -hmm. directors um the stories i've been involved with um you know so in a general sense i i've been very fortunate to work with some of the great creative um, actors um, directors but even behind the scenes some great creative production designers and and so forth and and to see how how we as filmmakers but even just as basic humans how can we make something that doesn't really exist and get mm. an audience to believe it um, using our understanding of, of that so working with all of those people is is in general i think my my greatest uh, memory um, it's um you know uh, i enjoyed very much making apollo 13 mm -hmm. because it was a uh, it was a film that we all as an audience as you know people citizens we know how it happened and came out but to create it uh, from the standpoint of uh, making an audience believe it to me was um, you know one one of the great kinds of memories I have but you know I don't I honestly don't think there's any film well there's very few films that I don't have some kind of good memory about it even even the worst film there was something um that was part of what made it um you know very interesting to me and and pleasurable and uh something that i really resonate with i was going to ask you this before but uh i read up somewhere uh, i think it was on imdb one of your quotes you say that uh, one of the, the most amazing things being in the film industry as a cinematographer is knowing that you will live on in the work that you've done long after you've gone. And for me as well, like as a filmmaker, it's, you know, uh, reveling and it's, not, it's about knowing, uh, having confidence in the same fact that we are <coughs> creating something that's, you know, going to outlive us. What advice would you have, you know, with relation to the quote that you said? 
what advice would you give uh, people wanting to uh, get into the film industry? What sort of encouragement would you give them? Well, um, yeah, you know, I, it, two things. One, one is that the fact that able to work on films that will stay around <clears throat> and um, you know while while I'm certainly not as visible or memorable as a great actor or a famous director you know we we still watch and and marvel at works by Alfred Hitchcock yeah. and um, John Ford and some of these people who who did really very interesting specific work that lasts a long time because it touched uh touches us as humans to yeah. empathize with the the plight of the main character or go through the uh, drama so um i i think that um you know that that's a satisfaction of mine to know that um maybe there'll be some people who remember but at least uh, if they don't know who I was or or care, um, at least they will see a, a film uh, in the future and and enjoy it. You know, and I'm I'm always intrigued by the fact that Jurassic Park and the Back to the Futures um, are are films that when I'll go to a convention or something that is about fans in a cult convention. And um, there are young kids who weren't alive when the movie came out who come up and say, oh, uh, it's one of my favorite movies. I love the thing where the dinosaur goes like this or whatever. <laughs> um, to know that, you know, sometimes three, three generations of people have seen and reacted to the films that I've done. And so hopefully if we still have films in the future um, that um, we, you know, people will, will see them and get something from them. And I, I can feel that my, my uh, short time here on, on, uh, in this world was not wasted, that um, I was able to do something uh, that, uh, you know, some of which I'm proud of and the others I would try to hide. <laughs> And uh, what words of encouragement would you give to youngsters basically wanting to come into the industry? Well, I, I give advice um, to, um, to film students uh, that if they're seriously interested in becoming a filmmaker, they have to, um, first of all, have passion. Mm. They have to do it because they want to do that more than anything else. Um, you know, there's a difference between uh, being in the world and saying, well, I need to have a job so I can, you know, buy a yeah. car or, you know, um, you know, go out with my friends or whatever. Um, so a job is something that you do for a particular reason. And for some people, that's an extremely important thing. Um, for filmmakers, um, as with a lot of artists and writers and, and anybody who uh, who is part of this, you know, peripheral 
part of human experience called creativity or sharing stories or making up things. Um, it, it takes a different kind of approach. Mm. Um, you have to do it because nothing else matters. And I look out at, at a crowd of students, you know, I'll be lecturing to like 40 of them, and then I'll work with them on a student film. And you realize that out of 40 people, there are maybe two that have the desire, the drive, and the creativity to mm. succeed. And the others, um, you know, they will learn something from this and maybe they learn appreciation of film, but um, there are, you know, two that are really dedicated. Now, the advice I give to film students is three things. One, um, besides being passionate and, you know, not taking no for an answer from anybody, yeah. you know, um, you you have to um, you have to want to do it, and you have to be dedicated from the standpoint that you will take any job you can get, um, any job you you know, you know you can't say well <laughs> no load the truck with lights no 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 I'm a director um, no I'm I'm a writer. I don't want to get my hands dirty carrying equipment around or working on the set or being a production assistant or whatever. No, you, you have to say any job I do, I will learn from it. Any job I do, I will, um, I will make myself valuable. I hope, um, I will make contacts, you know, so they're all little steps towards somewhere. Also, when someone says, hey, would you like to work as a production assistant or as a grip or whatever? You say, yes. You don't say, well, how much are you going to pay me? Because that tells them you're not interested in the creative work. Mm -hmm. You are interested in the money. And, um, you know, they, they want you to, they want to think that you are, working on their film because it's the greatest piece of art ever that you are dedicated to it because you want to contribute to the greatest piece of art ever. Um, not because you need some money uh, to go, you know, to McDonald's or whatever. Um, then <clears throat> you give uh, when you're working 110%, you do more than is expected. Um, you, you know, if somebody has to stay behind and pack up the equipment, be the one who volunteers. Don't be the person who says, oh, my God, look, at it, what time is it? it it's been eight hours. I, I, we can't work more than eight hours. So I have to go home now. Um, or, no, I can't, I can't lift those things, you know. If the thing is too heavy, you go say, hey, let me go get someone to help and accomplish the job. Give 110%. They will remember you because you didn't ask how much. You said, oh, I don't care, 110%. And I took this 
very menial job because I want to make the greatest piece of art ever. Wow. And it's very simple. All you got to do is follow those three things That's and you become amazingly famous and wealthy. I think that's the best advice anyone's ever uh, given on this show. So, man, thank you so much for that, Dean. Well, of course. <laughs> Dean, thank you so much for coming on the session. Uh, this has taken place like halfway around the world. And it's not every single day that we have someone who's worked on a movie that we grew up with as children and uh, a legend in his own right, people. Uh, that's it today for Junkyard Theory, and I will see you guys with the next session. Dean, thank you so much again. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm amazed that we can do this. We can talk face-to-face -face halfway around the world, and, and I uh, hope uh, I've been able to uh, you know, offer some view, viewpoint, some opinions, and some advice to, uh, to the people that you reach out to. More than expected, sir. Thank you so much again. Thank you.